our God. He rules and reigns, and so we may trust in him. And we come to his word. He has spoken to us, and he speaks to us yet and always in his word. And so we find our instruction, not just to how to live, but our instruction to see him here this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Encourage you to follow along with us. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 7 this morning. And as we do so, I'd like you to consider what are the qualities of a leader that you would like to see in your leaders? What are the qualities that make a good leader? What is necessary? What are the qualities that are necessary for someone to lead? The answer is it depends on what they're doing, doesn't it? What someone is doing, the kind of job that they have, will dictate the kind of character that is necessary for it. When I was younger, I served as a janitor. No one cares too much about the character of their janitor, unless their janitor likes to steal, and then they care. But the, the, the character qualifications for a janitor are lower. But the, the more prestigious, the more important, maybe we should say it that way, one's role is, the, one, the, one, the more one's role, one's job is to be seen and followed by others, the more important their character becomes. And so we find that when we come to the topic, when we come to the role of pastor, elder, or bishop, those are three words describing one office, one office within the church, that there is a a list of character qualifications given to those men that fulfill that role. And we're going to look at these character qualifications, and I just want you to imagine how different they are from what is often expected or for what it, how different they are, these characteristics are, from what are often the reasons someone is chosen for leadership, whether in church or elsewhere. Often in churches, someone is given leadership if they've been at the church long enough. It's almost as if they have earned this spot. I was a charter member. I was here at the beginning. Or if they have given a lot of money to the church, sometimes that is enough for them to become a leader in it. Sometimes it's worldly success, success in business, good job, nice family, perhaps nice things is enough for them to become a leader. If they dress well or if they are very charismatic personality, charming, funny, sometimes it's enough for a pastor to become a pastor if he simply got the gift of gab. He likes to talk and he's a really good communicator. That's enough. That's what we're looking for. Perhaps better yet, we're looking for someone who has a a good knowledge of the Bible. Perhaps we're thinking of someone who is visionary, a strategic thinker, smart, confident. Perhaps you want someone who's bold, courageous. Or you want someone who's sensitive, thoughtful. There are probably a dozen other things we could add to this list, but... Paul gives us what are the expectations, what are the character qualifications for an elder. And while we're going to look at these verses and what they call us to, we we should not think that this list is exhaustive. It is not. In fact, Titus 1, Paul gives a similar list there, but 
there are some differences between the two lists. And it's not that Paul is saying here in Ephesus, the character qualifications are one thing here, but where Titus is serving, it's something else. No, there is a general theme that runs through both. And Paul just hits on different specifics. It's not exhaustive, but it is a good summary of what we should aim for. And it's not just for, for elders. This is for all of us. What kinds of character qualities ought you who are single to be looking for in a mate? What kind of character qualities do you need to be developing within yourself? What kind of character qualities should we want in our spouses? What kind of character qualities do you think our spouses want from us? What about parents with children? What ought their character to be like? This, this touches on everything. More than this, we need this as a church. This is not just to be read and enjoyed and studied by those who are currently elders or seeking it. It's supposed to be known by the whole church. Because what we find in the New Testament is that the church is responsible for its leaders. The church in Galatia, Paul holds them responsible for their leaders. Their leaders are teaching that which is wrong. And Paul urges them to get them out. The implication is that if the church fails to hold its leaders accountable, the church itself will be accountable to God. You are accountable for your elders to the Lord. As much as what we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 13, your elders will be held accountable to the Lord for you. There is a quick warning we need as we approach these character qualifications. There are two dangers that I have seen abroad when we, when we come to the scriptures about these types of things. One is to subtract. The other is to add. That is, we, we subtract from God's word by simply ignoring those things, those qualifications that we may not like, or by interpreting them in such a way so narrowly that they don't apply. The other danger is that we add to God's word. Either adding character qualifications that that aren't necessary or by adding ideas and meaning to what is here to raise the bar higher than what God expects and demands. We find both in churches. In fact, we find both in the Garden of Eden. You'll remember Satan starts off with uh, his temptation to Eve, questioning, does God really say? That's that, that, that subtraction, the temptation to subtract. But then he goes on, and it's, it's not just when Eve, Eve doesn't just simply subtract, she adds to it. God told us that we're not supposed to eat of the fruit or even touch it. Well, that was never commanded. That's an extra addition later added. That, that's not what God called us to do. What we must do as believers is to submit to God's word. Not to add, not to subtract, but to submit to it. Allow it to speak into our lives. Allow it to have its full weight. So as we begin our, our study this morning, would you join me in a word of prayer? We need this this morning. Father in heaven... We read in Isaiah 40, verse 8, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word stands forever. 
Father, this is your word, not just to the people and to a church and to the man, Timothy. Long ago, it is to us today. We need it. Dig out our ears so that we may hear it. Uncover our hearts so that we may feel your word this morning. It may penetrate us to our very core. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. What we find, we spent our time last week looking at verse 1. What we find this week is, I, is that here there are character qualities of an elder, and we see in verse 2 that there is a necessity for godly character. There is a necessity for godly character. There's two, two signals to that in the beginning of verse 2. A bishop then must be blameless. First, you can see he, he must be. All right, There's that first flag, red flag, that here is a, a necessity. This isn't an optional. Godly character isn't an extra add-on to the Christian life. This is an essential. More than this, he writes, a, in the New King James, it translates a bishop then. If you're using another translation, it's most likely you'll find something like, therefore, a bishop must be. That is the point, there is an arrow pointing back to verse 1. And basically what he is saying is, look, last week we saw at the end of verse 1 that the, the, the good work of leading a church, the good work of being a pastor, of being an elder, that is a good work. Therefore, you must have good character. Good work requires good character. That's, that is the foundation of what Paul is saying here. It is a good thing to aspire to the role of elder. Brothers, let me just urge you once again to consider that, to, to aspire to that. But he goes and he begins and tells us what these character qualifications are. And what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to touch on each one briefly. And then I'm going to ask some specific questions, trying to dig down and what this might look like in our lives. A bishop then must be blameless, or we might better translate that as above reproach. Above, above reproach. We see this again listed in verse 7. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The point is, it's bookended. At the very beginning and at the end, this idea that the elder and the pastor, they are to be above reproach. That is, they are to be blameless before others. Both At the beginning and at the end, it bookends it so that everything in between is characterized by being above reproach. That is, he is above reproach at church. He is above reproach at home. He is above reproach at work. In every area of life. It means to be the kind of person that others would be shocked to hear that we are charged with wrongdoing or immorality. That our behavior and demeanor has earned the respect of others that our observable life is worthy of the gospel of God. And so ask yourself these questions. Are you faithful in the way you conduct yourself in all areas of life? Does the way we live our lives encourage others to follow Jesus? Or does your life quietly signal that the faithfulness and the things of God, they can take a back seat? That they aren't that important? Would a coworker 
or a family member be surprised to hear that you served as an elder at your church. Imagine yourself to be your own prosecutor. What are the charges that you would lay against yourself? What are the charges that your neighbors might levy? Your coworkers, your family members, your friends. It's not that blameless or above reproach means perfection. It does not. It means that our lives are following after the Lord. Imperfectly, yes. But that others, by and large, look at us and are able to follow Christ as they follow us. That is, there is a pattern of faithfulness. More than this, he is to be an elder, is to be the husband of one wife. Literally, this means he is to be a a one-woman man. And there are lots of ways that churches down through the centuries have misunderstood this. In the Greek Orthodox Church, to be, they have interpreted this uh, passage to mean that a pastor must be married, a bishop, a, a, he, he must be married. They require marriage for leaders, but this is not required. Christ was not married, the Apostle Paul was not married, and, and by and large, it's a good rule of thumb that if if your qualification for a church elder would disqualify Christ or the Apostle Paul, you've probably raised the bar too high. If our, bar, if our bar for leadership in the church is so high that Jesus himself could not serve as an elder or the pastor, we may need to reconsider. It's the same thing we see later when, he talks, when Paul talks about how a pastor, how an elder oversees his children. It does not mean that an overseer, a pastor, must have children. It just means if you are married, this is what you must be. You must be a one-woman man. So it doesn't mean that you must be married, nor does it mean what the Roman Catholic Church has taught, that one ought not to be married if they serve the church. In fact, this, this is the exact opposite of that, isn't it? Here's the expectation that one, normally a pastor, an elder, probably is, not necessarily, but probably is going to be married. Third, Paul isn't aiming at polygamy, although it it does have some bearing on those cultures where polygamy has, has been and is being practiced. In some parts of the world, having multiple wives was a sign of power, of prestige, of importance in the community, and it might have been that part of what Paul is getting at here is saying, look, just because someone is prestigious just because someone is important in the community does not mean that they should then have leadership in the church. But that does not seem to be his primary aim here. Fourth, Paul isn't primarily prohibiting a man from, he isn't prohibiting a man uh, from marrying once his wife has died. Some churches have taught that if your wife passes away, you must not remarry. To be remarried after your wife has passed away precludes you, prohibits you from serving as a pastor or an elder. And fifth, I do not believe Paul is talking about a man who has been divorced here. Paul could have said that, but he doesn't. Both Christ and Paul give specific cases where divorce is permitted for believers. 
And to deny that to church leaders seems to create a double standard. More than this, Paul, by his own admission, was a murderer. He sought out to persecute and kill Christians. And it seems to create a false understanding, a false way that it's okay for him to have been a murderer, but it's not okay for a man who has been divorced. That seems to weigh things rather poorly. This does not mean that a man's marital status of being married or divorced has no bearing. I don't want to suggest that at all. Because at the heart of what it means to be an uh, elder or a pastor is to be an example to other believers. And it requires that the church trust this person. And a man's divorce would certainly affect that. What this does mean, what he is getting at here is more than just one's marriage status. Paul is aiming at the heart. It means that we are not just married to one wife or have had one wife at one time. It means that we are one women men. An elder is to be faithful to his wife, not flirtatious, doesn't have a wandering eye, he's not getting emotionally or physically committed to another woman? So I ask you, brothers, how do you relate to other women in the church? Are you battling, battling lust routinely or are you regularly giving in to lust? Is there any accountability, transparency in your communication with other women who are not your wife? Or are you fostering secret text threads? And other forms of communication. If, if I picked up your phone, would you be afraid of what I might find in your browser history? Would you be afraid that I might stumble across what text message you have sent recently? Brothers, we are to be one woman kind of men. Faithful. And Paul gets into then three different words here goes on, a bishop that must be blameless, the husband of one wife, and he gives three different words, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior. That is, he is describing someone who is self-disciplined. They are self-controlled, temperate, prudent, sensible, and as a result, they are respectable. They are a person who has discipline over their thinking and over their lives. It's not someone who is prone to making rash decisions, but someone who is prudent in their dealings, able to reason things through. And as a result, they are, re- they are reverent, they are respectable. Not that they demand the respect of others, but that the way they live their lives, the more you get to know them, even though you're going to see their flaws, yet you still respect them. This is the kind of person that we are to be. And so, brothers, we can ask ourselves, are there areas of your life where you are prone to overindulge? Is it food? Is it drink? Procrastination? Something else? When something doesn't go your way, when someone disagrees with you, what is your response? Are you immediately raising your voice, getting angry, getting carried away with your emotions? There are going to be times when elders disagree with one another on a matter of prudence. There are going to be times when 
elders lose a vote. I, as a pastor, as the pastor here, I have lost a vote to my elders. Can you believe they did not agree with me? They, they did not realize that I was infallible. My wife knows I'm not infallible. We're going to lose a vote. How do you respond when that happens? More than this, a pastor, an elder, must be hospitable. That doesn't mean you have to be an extrovert. And some, some people are wired that way. Some of our elders are wired to be extroverts. Some are more introverted. I, I love the diversity we have within our, our, our elders. They are godly men, love the Lord, seeking to be faithful in all things. And they're all wired a little differently. I think of David LeBlanc, who... I don't think he's ever met someone that isn't immediately his friend. He, he is one of the most engaging people. He's out in the lobby often on Sunday mornings. He's, he's identifying and looking. and he, he loves going after. He gets encouraged and energy from being with people. Others of your elders, they love being with you. They love being with people. But at the end of it, they're exhausted and drained. I think of Randy Egolf, who loves people. But if you ever see Randy going out of his way to greet everybody, something's wrong, right? But I have watched Randy and Janet open up their home for people. Host missionaries coming in, caring for their needs, sacrificing That is what this is being talked about. Hospitality. It's not a personality trait. It's the real world expression of love. It's the call to show practical love and care for other believers. In the ancient world, this was necessary because Christians would enter into a town and they might be rejected by everybody. And if the the elder, the pastor of the church wasn't hospitable, he wasn't welcoming to this other believer or to this person that was coming in. The church often rejected them as well. And so it is imperative that those who serve the church, that they lead in this way. So brothers, do you make it a point to welcome guests, leaving behind your circle of friends, breaking off a conversation to talk with someone that you don't know, that you don't recognize? This is showing love to your neighbor. Do you notice the guest sitting alone, inviting them to join with you if appropriate, or even inviting them to lunch after church? Do you notice those around you who might have needs? Do you notice someone who, who hasn't been here for a little bit, who may be sick? Do, you, does your, do any flags go up? Do you ever consider inviting someone home, taking someone out to coffee throughout the week? If if we can, as followers of Christ, feel completely comfortable with never serving and caring for someone, never giving someone a ride to church who needs it or offering to help in some way, I, I don't know that we understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. We are to be hospitable, elders especially. An elder... Paul goes on, this is the one qualification that does not apply to other believers. But he goes on to say an elder must be apt or able to teach. 
Here Paul departs from describing character and he describes some level of competency to highlight what must be true for an elder. That just doesn't mean that every elder is going to be equally gifted in speaking. I have known some pastors and elders who are terrified of speaking in large groups. You put them one-on-one with someone, you put them in a small group, and they open up. This is a willingness and an ability to explain God's word to others, whether it be from teaching or Sunday school or Bible studies or preaching on small, in Sunday mornings or small groups or one-on-one. The reason Paul adds this here is because the life of a pastor, the life of an elder, is to center around the word distinctly. So brothers, give yourselves to understanding and building that opportunity to speak, building up your skill in speaking. And if you would like opportunities, please come see me. But then he goes on to describe in verse 3, three, some things, four things that an elder must not be. It is we are not to be given to wine, not violent, not quarrelsome, not covetous, not a lover of money. Now the New King James adds not greedy for money, but you'll notice that some, many of you will have a little number that signals that that is not there in the Greek text. That is the, the most reliable manuscripts that we have don't have that line. It seems to be added in later. It, it's actually, you can find that in Titus, but you don't find that here. It's, it's, well, you can read it simply. You're not losing anything because not covetous simply means a better translation might be not a lover of money. But he's, he's not a drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome, and right there in the middle, but gentle. That is, these things are all, all tied together. Not to be a lover of money, not to be drunk. These are two things that we see throughout Scripture are, are in Christians, followers of Christ, are warned against. Not violent, that is physically violent. Not quarrelsome. Not regularly picking fights with someone. Not, not getting so engaged over minor points that everything becomes a fundamental of faith. Everything becomes some, a hill to die on. But there's no way to show grace and compassion and patience with someone as they learn. Rather, we are to be gentle with someone. This is what Christ, this is the gentleness of Christ. A bruised reed he will not break. Isaiah the prophet describes Christ as, and elders are to be men who display gentleness. Even when later on we're going to find that part of what an elder is responsible to do is he is to rebuke those who are teaching false doctrine. But he's even supposed to do that with gentleness and kindness so that that person will repent and come back. Gentleness is meant to mark elders. So, brothers, I I ask, are are you drinking to excess? How often, how many drinks are you having? Is there someone you are accountable to? Are you taking the warnings about alcohol in the Scripture seriously? We might ask, what does your life say about the relationship that you have with money and possessions? Are you always looking for nicer things, better things, more comfort at the cost of Christ's kingdom? What about conflict? Being quarrelsome, being violent, what do you like at home? Would other believers be able to say when it comes to you that you're not quarrelsome, that you're able to distinguish between 
major and minor points of doctrine. You are capable of not, of being shown where you're wrong. Are you considerate of others, patient, able to disagree? All of this is just the the general tenor of an elder's life. But then he goes on and he gives us some added characteristics of what a man is to be like who is to serve as an elder or pastor. Verse 4, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? There is in this chapter, Paul refers to the church as the household of God. And the word household uh, there and later in this chapter is found in, these, in this verse here. If a man does not know how to rule his own house or household, how will he be able to take care of the church of God? That is, a, the church is a family. And if you can't rule your family well, how are you going to lead the church? But that raises the question, doesn't it? What does it mean to rule one's home? I mean, that, that word rule gives many people uh, a, a terrifying image of a domineering man who is demanding things his way. But I want you to see how verse 4 and 5 are used, how that is described in verse 4 and 5. One who rules his own house well, it's well, ruling it well. And what does that look like? Verse 5, if a man does not know how to rule his own house, here we are told, How will he not rule, which would be the parallel. But the parallel word, he says, is how will he take care of the church of God? The word used here for take care of is used one other time in the New Testament. It's used to describe the way the good Samaritan took care of the man that he found lying alongside the road. That is, he, he, he sacrificed his time, he sacrificed his, his energy, his money, he, he gave of himself to care. That is what, brothers, that is what your rule of your home is to look like. Are you taking care of your home? Not demanding submission and respect, but through the way that you love and sacrifice prompting it, provoking it? Are you attentive, brothers, to your family? Are your children submissive, following you? More than this, we see the character of an elder in his walk with God. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, verse 6, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Not a novice. That is, that, that picture of a novice is a, is a gardening image. That is, it's got the image of a, a plant that has been newly planted. The roots haven't yet taken root. It hasn't really strengthened yet. It's, a, it's weak. It's vulnerable. An elder is not to be a new Christian. He is to be mature in the faith. Paul is reminding us that elders and pastors can't be new to Jesus. And you can understand the temptation. Often when you, when you come to Christ in faith, there is this initial burst of energy and life and zeal and fervency. 
but it's been yet untested, right? It's like a new sapling that's just been planted. What is it going to do? Is it going to hold up under the, under the heat of the summer sun? Is it going to be able to hold up when the winds blow through, when the ice weighs heavily on its branches? Will it last a season or two, or will it be killed in the circumstances? And Paul is saying, just because you see that initial burst of zeal, don't jump on the bandwagon and assume that this guy is ready for leadership. Give it time. Let him be tested. Let him learn to sink his roots down deep into Christ and draw his life and strength there. So brothers, are you gripped by a sense of your own inability and strength to live as you've been called Are you casual in your approach to the Lord? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to avoid the same downfall that we see here. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Brothers, we need to cultivate a sense of humility lest we fall into the same judgment as the devil did. Let me close with three final observations. Do you notice how absolutely ordinary this list is? Nothing here in this list is extraordinary. Although if we were to find someone who perfectly fit this list we would call them extraordinary, right? And, and the only one who has ever fit this list perfectly is who? It is Christ Jesus. But nothing here is, is absolutely extraordinary. Nothing here is, is incredible. It's all ordinary. Paul doesn't say, hey, the next elder that you look for, the next pastor that you look for, they need to, they need to have led massive programs in the church. They need to have led so many thousands of people to Jesus. They need to have read the Bible through a hundred times. They need to have made some pilgrimage to Jerusalem or achieved a certain level of wealth and financial stability. No, what Paul gives is a, a number of unique character qualifications that could be described of anyone, whether they are rich, whether they are poor. The point is that the bar is not low for pastors and elders. The point is that pastors and elders, the the job of pastors and elders is primarily to be an example. When Paul wants to dictate and to tell Timothy, this is what elders do, this is the good work they do, the thing that he goes to is to tell us the example that we are to give. Elders primarily lead, lead in the word, Lead in life by example. We are to say, along with the Apostle Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. It points out something else. That these qualities, when lived out, they will, they will raise the temperature of the church. That is, an elder, when when we live out and do what God calls us to be here, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we do this, elders are to be and they will act as, as thermostats, not as thermometers. 
thermometer is going to measure, it's going to rise and fall and just tell you what the temperature of the room is. It has no control, but the thermostat you set, and at this time of year, we set it higher than normal. But it has control, to, it has the ability to, to raise the temperature in the room and to lower it. That is what elders do. Second thing we see is that these qualities are used to describe one's life after coming to Christ. These qualities are ordinary. They are to be true of every believer. But they are to describe the qualities that we are to possess and to aspire to after we have come to Christ. Many believers have been guilty of many things before coming to Christ. Paul was a murderer. Many of Christ's disciples, like Peter, who denies Christ, they abandoned Jesus. Somehow that did not prohibit them from service. This does not mean that no sin prior to Christ might disqualify someone from being a church leader, but we ought to be very slow to make demands on someone where the Lord does not. Here's the the crux of the issue. Can we as a local church recognize and trust this individual with the office of an elder? Do we trust their character? Character. Let's say a man's conduct at work before he came to Christ was not above approach. That for years he spent living his life, he was a terrible example, not a good worker. He was angry, he was hostile, he was difficult. He comes to Christ and he begins to slowly change. And over the years he begins to set a pattern whereas he is Honorable, he is above reproach in his work, he is diligent. Does his previous failure to be above reproach disqualify him forever? The rule of thumb is this, the more serious, the more scandalous, the more degree of deception is involved in hiding and covering up that sin, the longer the on-ramp needs to be for that person to serve in future ministry. Why? Because it all comes down to our ability as a church to trust that person. To see that they have an established pattern of following the Lord faithfully. Lastly, if you and I are honest, this list, as ordinary as it is, it's daunting. To be above reproach? To be above reproach at home? To be above reproach at work? To be above reproach at church? To be, to be above reproach when I'm driving my car on 422? How is that possible? Friend, I would invite you, brothers and sisters, I would invite you to compare your life to these qualities. Where are you falling short? Well, you may, you may honestly say, Pastor, I am falling short in every area. I, I, I don't think I'll ever attain there. If you're not a Christian, you may be impressed with this list. You you may even be crushed by it. 
Would you give me permission for just a moment to make that feeling of being crushed a little worse? However short you feel that you are meeting up to this list, your standing before God is worse than you know. You see, we, we look on the outward appearance. All of these are things that are merely observable. First Samuel tells us that God is the one who looks in the heart. It's not just your actions. It's, it's your thinking. It's your feelings. It's your motivations. It's all of it God sees. He sees the, the selfishness twisted in with the good motives. He knows you better than you know yourself. What God rightly demands from each of us as our creator, as the ruler over all things, he rightly demands perfection, holiness, righteousness. And you have seen in your heart, I know you have, if you are the least bit honest, you have seen just a, a shade of darkness there. And I'm telling you, the darkness is deeper than you know. What God has done is incredible. He has not left you and I to to muddle our way through with the feelings of being crushed under the guilt and shame of our failure to live up to what he calls us to. God himself has made a way. Though we deserve his condemnation, his judgment, for we are sinning against him, living life for our own way, according to our own purposes and our own desires, God in Christ has come into the world. And where you and I fail, he has been obedient. And though you and I deserved judgment and condemnation, he has been gracious and merciful. More than that, he himself has borne the condemnation of all who trust in him. So friend, this morning, be crushed no longer. Be burdened no longer. Find forgiveness in Christ. Find mercy at the cross. Brother and sister in Christ, how is progress in these things coming for you? Some of you have been Christians longer than I've been alive. How are you doing? I remember talking to an older believer. He was, this is years ago, he was in his late 80s, he has now passed. And his words to me, while he was in the nursing home, now alone, were, were full of the fact that he was still so frustrated at how sinful he still was. And yet this is what God calls all of us to, and for elders supremely. Years ago, a book came out entitled Good to Great. It's a business book. It's not a Christian book. The author is not a Christian. Jim Collins, along with a a team of people, did a study in which they evaluated various companies in the U.S. who were able to achieve a certain level of success above the market for a lengthy period of time. And they began to ask the questions, what made these companies go from merely good to great? And they began to break out the qualities that they saw in these companies. And one of those qualities that they saw in all of these companies that contributed significantly to their long-term success was a certain kind of leader. 
they wanted to describe it as a level five leader with, because, well, the certain the qualities that they saw was that here, these leaders of these companies, they were marked by self-sacrifice. They were marked by humility. They were marked by care for their employees. And so they called this kind of leader who was marked by these qualities as being a, a level five leader. Well, one time he was giving, Jim Collins was giving a, a, a talk to a number of CEOs and CFOs and businessmen and women. And he was describing what it was going to take for them to take their companies from merely good to being great. And he got to this point in his lecture. And in the question and answer time, one of the CEOs raised their hand, went to the microphone and said... You described that level five leader, that kind of leader with those qualities. I don't match up to that. How can I become that kind of person, that kind of leader? Do you know what Jim Collins' answer was? I don't know. I don't know. As I was reading that book, it was the most hopeless section I have ever read. And yet some of us live that way. We live as if to get what God calls us to be, if we will just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try harder and harder and harder, then we'll get there. But many of you know, who have been living that way for so long, you know it doesn't work. Friends, God has not left us helpless. He has not left us helpless. This past Wednesday night, Dan was leading us in our Wednesday night Bible study here. And he began to break out the various ways in which Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. And he tells them what he's praying for. And he gives three things that he's praying for them. And the final thing that he's praying for them is that they would know the power of Christ. It is that power, the power of Christ, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that is now at work in us. It is that power that by the Spirit of God dwelling within us, living dependently on Him, that God enables us slowly but surely to do what He calls us to do. It is not in you to become this. It is not in any of us. It is only in Christ. So friend, brother and sister in Christ, look to Him today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your grace. We are not what we want to be. We are not what we ought to be. We are not what we one day will be. But as John Newton reminds us, we are what we are because of Christ. And Lord, we trust that in your, by your power, in your time, you will sharpen and shape us to live and to be what you have called us to be. We leave ourselves in your hands, O oh God, asking you to do in us, through us, what we are helpless on our own to do. Work, O oh God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.